Good morning. We are grateful that you are here this morning. We're thankful to see you, to be together. We're thankful for the encouragement that we can have together as we think about the Word of God, as we worship together and honor Him through our communion and our time spent together in worship and Bible study, but also, as we've said, certainly with our time of fellowship that we can enjoy uh, after our services and the time we can spend together in, in fun. And we hope that you can be back with us anytime that you have an opportunity. We do have a few visitors in our midst today. We're grateful for your presence. We try to say from time to time here in the pulpit that if you have any questions about anything that you observe or anything that we do in our services or anything you hear, not only in the lesson, but in our Bible classes and other places, we'd love a chance to, to answer any of those questions, especially in regard to Bible things, because we want to do our best to follow exactly what the Bible has to say. Today is October 31st. You probably didn't need the preacher to tell you that. It's one of those days that is circled, of course, on the calendar for uh, many different reasons. Uh, when we think about October 31st, we think about many of the other days that sort of you know, pop up on our calendar during the year that mean something, July the 4th or December 25th or January 1st. Those are, are days that we all think about and enjoy for, for various reasons, but October 31st is certainly one of those. Uh, you know, I was thinking even earlier that when we think about orange and black together, you know, I mean, we typically think of October 31st or certainly this time of year. One of those reasons, and there are several reasons why October 31st might be important. One of those, of course, is because we celebrate Halloween. We know that there is no Bible instruction. There's no uh, Bible authority to celebrate Halloween as a religious holiday and, of course, by the same token or on the other side of the coin, we might say we, we don't want to do anything that some people might consider to, to honor the devil or some people might say it's a day in which people worship the devil or, or demons or that kind of thing. But certainly if it's a matter of personal choice, we celebrate the day as a bit of a holiday, a chance to dress up as Mary Poppins or Bert or Charlie Brown or Darth Vader or anything that you might have seen on a picture here on the screen as it was going through the announcements. We have fun and you know me. Any chance that there is chocolate involved, I want to celebrate that kind of holiday, and I appreciate that. So as a matter of personal choice, this is one of those days that we celebrate as, as a holiday. Now, many of you are going to recognize at least one person in this picture. For if, I, if I'm correct, I think there may just be three of us that recognize the second person in this picture. The one in the bottom left-hand corner, I know I'm taking my job in my own hands by putting this picture up on the screen this time of year. Uh, but October 31st is one of those days uh, that is celebrated because it is Nick Saban's birthday. He turned 70 years old today, and whatever you think about him or the colors that he wears, the team that he coaches, October 31st is important because it's his birthday as well. Uh, the other person in the top right-hand corner, again, I said a moment ago, there's probably just about three people here that have ever seen this man when he was alive. This is my paternal grandfather. His name was Oliver Alonzo Danley, Jr. His birthday was October the 31st. He died in the year 2000, and if he had lived to see his birthday in the year 2000, well, I say that now, if he was still alive, he'd be 98 years old if he were still alive today. But this is my dad's dad. He served as an elder in the Lord's Church in the Jackson Heights Congregation in the Florence, Alabama area for about 34 years. And I'm thankful to have known him and know that his birthday was October 31st. There's another person that many of you might not recognize that's on the screen here. But you know his name because this is a man that goes by the name of Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, of course, is very well known as being a priest in the early 1500s. I think he became a priest around 1505 or, or 1507. He became a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. 
He's well known, though, because in the year 1510, he visited Rome. He actually went and visited Rome. And while he was there, he observed so much religious laxity, if you will. He was appalled by the spiritual nature of the people because it was simply very lax and it wasn't very good. And even among the priesthood, there were many people who were not as spiritual maybe as they, they should have been. They professed or, or wore a name in one way, but then they certainly practiced other things and it didn't match up. And so he had a problem on his hands. And most of you are not familiar with that whole story behind him, but you may even be familiar with this particular building. You see, this is the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. The All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, also known as the Castle Church that was there. Because October 31st is also widely celebrated and believed to probably be the exact date, very possibly, in which Martin Luther took his 95 theses and nailed them on the door of the church, the All Saints Church there in Wittenberg. October 31st was the year 1517. 1517, about seven years after he had visited Rome and was just appalled by what he had witnessed and what he had seen there. I first put this lesson together about four years ago because in 2017, it was the 500-year anniversary of that. And so that I did that, that lesson or this particular lesson at the Lake Hills congregation where I was preaching at the time because October 31st fell on a Sunday. So don't worry, you won't get this every four years or so when October 31st falls on a Sunday. But I've been waiting for it because I, I really enjoyed putting this lesson together. And as many of you are historians, or at least kind of partial historians, you enjoy thinking about the historical nature of things and, and things that have happened and even things like Martin Luther's 95 Theses that you are aware of, even possibly just from your schooling when you were growing up and hearing about these things. If you know much about Martin Luther's theses, it was the sale of indulgences that really kind of maybe pushed him over the edge, if you might say. If you're familiar with this idea of the sale of indulgences, it was a payment that you could make to the Roman Catholic Church to reduce the length or the severity of punishment, to reduce the length of or severity of punishment for yourself or even possibly for a loved one, someone who might have already died in this life and, and moved on to what comes next, and, and you could go and then make payment, give money to the church as an indulgence, and then they would say that that would help or, or reduce the punishment that they might be going through. Buy an indulgence, and then you, maybe you don't have to worry about that affair that you're having because you've paid for an indulgence and given the church money. And Martin Luther, of course, saw the problem here with this, and it was just one of the several things that came to his mind that caused him to sit down and write those 95 theses, post them to the door. If my study or you know, research into this is correct, we're very familiar with that idea of him nailing them to the door at the church at Wittenberg, but he also mailed copies, I believe, to several people and, and began to spread this around because he felt so serious about it. Well, that was something that we know very well, but three and a half years later, in early 1521, in early 1521, in the city of Worms, Germany. You know, I find in my travels now that people think that Soddy Daisy is a bit of a funny name, but I, I'm glad we don't live in Worms. I think that would be just a little bit more different to try to explain to people. But in the city of Worms, Germany, Martin Luther was put on trial because he was supposed to renounce 
his claims that he made in those 95 theses. They put him on trial, and that became known as the Diet of Worms of 1521. And he had to, they talked about it, I'm sure, you know, just like any kind of governmental type of idea or standing before a group of people. I mean, we still have it going on, of course, today in Congress and that kind of thing. But he had to sit and be asked questions, I'm sure, and they, they wanted him to talk and explain himself and those kinds of things. But the whole purpose of the Diet of Worms of 1521 was so that Martin Luther would renounce exactly the things that he had said. But as history holds forth, and it tells us, at the very end of his speech or speeches of what he said, he made this particular statement. He said, unless I am proven wrong by the testimony of Scripture or by correct reasoning, Unless I am proven wrong by the testimony of Scripture or by correct reasoning, I am convinced by the Scriptures I have presented and my conscience is bound to the Word of God. Now, what we know about Martin Luther is that he was still wrong on on several other things and he was still wrong on maybe some other matters that we could discuss at a different time and maybe even a different lesson. But this definitely has kind of an Acts chapter 5 verse 29 feel to it. Do you remember people who were standing on trial, so to speak, there in that moment in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29 who made the statement, we must obey God rather than man. And this has that kind of feel to it. I mean, I I think Luther was wrong on a lot of things, but but this he kind of is getting right because he's saying, unless I'm convinced by some scripture that I've yet to find, or you're going to explain something different to me, then I am bound to the word of God. You see, in 2017, the Protestant Reformation turned 500 years old because Martin Luther's 95 Theses and even what took place there in the Diet of Worms are that time when we typically think of the Protestant Reformation beginning. And so now here we are four years later, and it's not quite the, the celebration or the, that people thought about as it was at the anniversary of 500 years, but 504 years ago, almost to the day, the Protestant reformation began but here's the thing it's the protestant reformation that's kind of an important word if you think about what we're going to talk about this morning it's called the reformation and that's okay in some ways it's a it's a good idea because here here's the thing martin luther was kind of on to something i think I mean, he may have still been off about some things, but, but he was. He was on to something because what he's saying is, here are some issues. I'm looking at this body, at these ideas, at what you are doing, and there are some issues here. There are some things that need to be corrected. And what we can look at Martin Luther doing and saying and his attitude at that time, and we can say we might need to have that attitude today. If we look around us, <clears throat> excuse me, whether it be our government or even whether it be our congregation or whatever it is, and we can see there are problems, we may need to speak up and have the courage to speak up and say, hey, there's something wrong here, and it needs to be corrected. Martin Luther was on to something 504 years ago, but but the problem is the intended reformation did not bring about the necessary results. There was some change, but one of the main changes that took place after he put these theses out and people began to think about it and consume these things, the main change that was made was that there were many new so-called churches that began to exist after what took place on October 31st, 1517. 
Harold Brown, who is a, a writer and a scholar, said it this way, it was not Luther's intention to found a new church, but from this time on, there were new churches. There was the Lutherans, there was the Reformed Church, there was the Anglican Church, and so on and so forth. It may have not been his intention, and yes, we might agree he was onto something by trying to say there's problems with what you folks are doing, but the intended Reformation did not bring about the necessary results. You see, I'm afraid that the thing that we could notice this morning as we think about this particular lesson is what the Reformation brought about was denominationalism. It brought about denominationalism. Now, to denominate is not necessarily just a wrong thing to say. It's not a bad word, per se. To, to this idea, or to use this idea of denominate, is to give a name to, or to designate. I mean, you think about a bank. You go to the bank, you give them a $200, maybe two $100 bills, and then you want some kind of denomination from that. You might want it in 20s or 10s or 5s. You want some kind of designation or to give a name to it. And in this sense, in the idea of a bank or money, it merely signif uh, signifies excuse me, a separation into divisions. We've got 200 We've got $100 bills, and we're going to divide it into smaller bills or different divisions. The word itself is not bad unless it is in certain contexts. Let me say this and, and try to do some research. I think the number is really fuzzy. I think it's hard to, depends on who you talk to and how they define the word, what the number is you might get. But just a, a basic kind of quick search says that there are around 40,000 to 45,000 denominations worldwide. And so let me ask you then, do you think that sounds like God's plan? Uh, God's ideal is that there be 45,000 different ideas, different ways of doing things? Because to, to divide things up is not ne necessarily a problem. You might even say we do that here sometimes. We have certain things that are for our widows or widowers. We have certain things that are for our youth. We divide up at times into different groups. It's not a problem. But what about the context of a denomination, as we refer to it, spiritually or congregations or churches? or There's lots of different words that might be used here. But here's what we want to know this morning. What does Scripture say? I mean, again, we talk about the bank. We talk about context, and that's not a big deal. Well, then what does Scripture say? Now, you can probably guess that the word itself, denomination or denominationalism, is not used in Scripture. But does Scripture give us any kind of idea about how to handle these things or what we should think when considering this idea of denominationalism? A few things for your thoughts. Number one, denominationalism is contrary to the prayer of Christ. You know that many people call what takes place in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus teaches his disciples, those who are gathered there, how to pray. Many people call that the Lord's Prayer. But we often say the Lord's Prayer really is found in John chapter 17. If you know that chapter, you know that basically the whole chapter of John 17, besides the very short description at the very beginning, is all in red because it's the words of Jesus. It's the Lord praying. He prays for himself. He prays for his disciples, and he prays for all believers. And it is that section, beginning in verse number 20, in which he prays for all believers, that he prays for unity. He prays in verse 21 that those who believe in him would all be one. 
that they also may be one in us. I see here a man, a savior, who is, on my Bible, I turn over one page to chapter 19, and he's crucified on the cross. He's near the end of his life, and almost with his last breaths, he is praying, he is begging. I can almost sense and feel emotion in his voice for unity. That's what he is desiring. And when we take the idea of being one and united, and on the other side we look at 45,000, we see that maybe there's a problem here. We need to be one. We need to be united and to split up and have all of these different ideas and all of these different things. Maybe it's something we need to consider. Not only is it contrary to the prayer of Christ, though, we see, secondly, that it is a violation of exhortation against division. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, basically the whole chapter, that is what Paul is doing there. With every breath, with this introduction to this epistle, to these people he's writing, you can feel it with emotion, with thought process, with feeling. He is saying, be one. Verse number 10, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. I told you just a minute ago, the word denomination is not used. But what does he say here? That there be no divisions. That there be no divisions among you. So he is exhorting us, exhorting them, and by way us, to not have division, to be united. So if we're going to split up and we're going to have all these different groups that are doing all these different things, then we're contrary to the prayer of Christ. We're contrary to the words of Paul and his exhortation to be united. But in that same chapter, we would notice thirdly, that denominationalism encourages people often to wear different names. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that same chapter, you go to verses 12 through 13, and I think I've preached this lesson here before. I know I've done it because I've got the notes in my Bible here. But the title of that sermon is How to Become a Paulite. Well, that's not what we're after here. We're after here how to become a Christian, how to become a Christ follower, not a Paulite. But what Paul is saying in verses 12 through 13 to these people is they are striving to be Paulites. They are striving to be followers of Apollos or followers of Cephas or of Christ. I mean, Christ is in there, but I follow Paul and I follow Cephas and I follow Apollos. They're wearing different names. And so sometimes denominationalism encourages people to take different names. You see, we use phrases like Christian or Christendom, and and that's maybe okay. It kind of catches this idea of people who are striving to be Christians. But if we're all practicing different things, if we're all sort of divided on things, or we're all wearing different names, seems like, even though the Bible doesn't use the word denominationalism, seems like maybe it's contrary to what Scripture would say, and certainly, as we said already, the very words of Christ. You see... October 31st, 1517, was a monumental day. But there was also another great day, or even week, that came along. In the year 1801, August the 6th through August the 13th or so, August 6th through August 13th, 1801, there was what became known as one of the largest camp meetings that ever took place. And many of you are familiar with tent meetings or camp meetings. We don't do those very much anymore. Or some people have them. Every once in a while we drive through the town of Dunlap there and there's a tent on the side of the road. And there are some folks that still try to have like a tent meeting every once in a while or once a year. But, but there it was a camp meeting that took place. 
Some of you are familiar with this because it was called the Cane Ridge Revival, and it took place in Cane Ridge, Kentucky. Now, this is obviously just a rendering of, of what took place there, but it is believed that there may have been anywhere from 10,000 to 20,000 people who visited this particular camp meeting. It's said that the grounds around the Cane Ridge building there could only hold about 10,000 people, maybe, maybe. But if you think about a, a several night event or meeting, that it may have been up to 20,000 people that might have visited. And I believe Cane Ridge is a little northeast of Lexington. And I believe this was a pretty good chunk of the population of Kentucky in 1801, when you think about population sizes. This Cane Ridge meeting. Cane Ridge Revival in Cane Ridge, Kentucky is well known because it was hosted. One of the main names that was used there was a man by the name of Barton W. Stone. And, and many of you are familiar with that name. You think about the Stone Movement or what's called the Stone Campbell Movement. But you can still visit this building today and the grounds there and learn about what took place. You see, Barton W. Stone was similar to Martin Luther. Barton W. Stone was known at the time as a Presbyterian minister. But here's the thing. Kind of like Martin Luther, he said, I've got some problems with what you're doing. That There are some issues with what's going on among the Presbyterian people or the Kentucky Synod or there's a lot of different things and names that are used there. But Barton W. Stone was a minister striving to teach the Bible who's saying, I'm wearing this name, but there are some problems there. In fact, three years later, it's very similar, almost kind of eerie how similar it is to Martin Luther. About three years later in 1804, Barton W. Stone, along with several other men, issued what became known as the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery. The last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery. And so in that, they put together this document and several signed it. And I think Barton Stone was a, a witness to it. And you can find the contents of it today and find copies of it to read. But they, sort of similar to Martin Luther, went through and listed all of these things. Several, not as many, but several. They renounced the title of reverend. They said, we don't want to be called reverend anymore. They said that they wanted to go back to an internal government among the church. What we might say is like autonomy. Even as we talked about last Sunday morning, we have a group of elders here. They are not over the North Hamilton congregation. They are not over the East Ridge congregation. They're over the congregation that meets here at Saudi. It's kind of an internal government. But in that last will and testament, Barton W. Stone said, we will, and he's not the only one, although he may be one of the more famous names, we will that people henceforth take the Bible as the only sure guide to heaven. And many people would say, amen. Kind of like Martin Luther would say that I am bound by my conscience to the word of God. Barton Stone and others would say here, we want people to take the Bible as the only sure guide to heaven. And so what's commonly referred to at that time in 1801 is that 220 or so years ago, the restoration movement began or was born. And you may be certainly familiar with that. You may not hear about it in your history class, as you might the Reformation movement or the Protestant Reformation. But about 220 years ago, the Restoration movement was born. Now, I say that, and let me make one caveat here. I say that because that's the time that it's commonly referred to. We look back in history and we read about Barton Stone and we read about Alexander and Thomas Campbell and other names and we think about that last will and testament as sort of a renouncing, if you will, a 95 theses for the 1800s to say we want to go back to the Bible. 
But in doing my research, I even found a brother in Christ, a preacher, who said that he had a book in his library. I'm not sure where he got it from, but even from the year 1645, so almost 200 years earlier than Barton W. Stone, that was written by a King James Version translator. And a, this King James Version translator, who was also an official in the Church of England, and this little book or pamphlet, if you will, was written, and it was seeking the one true church. It was talking about worship. It was talking about titles. And so even pre-1800, there were people who were seeking to restore certain things. So that's not maybe a, the full picture, but commonly when you look at history and you ask people, they'll say that about 220 years ago in, in 1801 or so, there was the beginning of the restoration movement. Now let's say it again, there's a key word here, and that is restoration. Restoration. Now let's ask the same question very quickly as we go through the rest of the lesson here. Is that found in Scripture? What does Scripture have to say about that particular subject? Well, we would notice, first of all, that in difference to the Reformation, restoration is speaking where the Bible speaks. If you were with us last Sunday morning, about a week ago, we began our lesson by using the phrase that was made well known by the Campbells, by Alexander and Thomas Campbell, the idea of doing Bible things in Bible ways and calling things by Bible names. Well, the restoration movement tried to practice that in that it was speaking where the Bible speaks. You know 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If we have anything to say, I know that we joked about football and sports earlier and we talk about life and pop culture and things that are going on and maybe that doesn't have anything to do or is here nor there necessarily with scripture. But if we are speaking and especially of spiritual things, let us speak as the Bible speaks as the oracles of God. You see, I wanted to come work with the congregation here because I believed it was trying to do that. I met with the elders, and I hope that the elders were trying to do that. I had a chance to try out here, as several others did, and hopefully the elders heard in me someone who was trying to do that, speaking where the Bible speaks. And so we continue on here together, certainly at least at this time, working together to do Bible things in Bible ways and call things by Bible names and to speak where the Bible speaks. But one other thing we might notice here is that the restoration movement was also about seeking the truth. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 23, buy the truth and do not sell it. Accumulate it, do all that it takes to get it. We think about even Jesus' parables about the pearl of great price and, and other things that encourage us to see something so valuable like the truth of Scripture, to seek after it, and do all you can to not sell it, to not get rid of it. John chapter 8 and verse 30, 32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It's not the preacher, it's not the reverend, it's not even the elders, it's not any one particular person, but it is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's his words that give us life. We need to go back to the truth and seek the truth above all things. When there's 45,000 or so different ideas, it's very, very hard to seek the truth or to find the truth. But God be thanked, he has given us his word that we can read and study and know. We can discuss. We can sit down with open Bibles, not just on Sundays or Wednesdays, 
but any day of the week and talk and study and reason together from Scripture on any number of things. Do we want to discuss salvation? Do we want to discuss sin and heaven? Absolutely. But let's talk about the other things that the life, that the book gives us, that the Bible gives us, according, gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We can and should discuss it. You know, I think Martin Luther was on the right track. But when we think about the Bible, we think about that Paul's encouragement to those Christians were to teach the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17. And even in 2 Timothy, Paul would encourage Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, he would encourage him to follow the pattern. To follow the pattern that he was giving, that he had given him. That's 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. Excuse me if you're writing notes there. Hold fast the pattern of sound words. But not only that, as he tells Timothy to follow the pattern, there in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, he tells them to then teach that to faithful men. So we have an encouragement to follow the Bible, to go back to Bible things, but also then to teach that to other people. You see, Luther did many good things. We can admire Luther. We, we might even could say this morning that we admire Martin Luther for highlighting the corruption and the hypocrisy of the Roman Catholic Church. But Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, they only saw fit to reform. Luther did many good things, but he did not go far enough. And the encouragement I would leave with you today is this question. If we, working together, cannot find a church like the New Testament one, can we not take the scriptures, read them, study them, and begin one? I think the answer is we can. Now what we're trying to do here is we are trying to be that without having to begin a new congregation, so to speak. But we can go back to the Bible and see what it says about all things, including following after him. We should be looking to the New Testament examples for what we should do, and we should be striving to practice that. <clears throat> One final illustration I saw, even just in the last few days as I was finishing my studies, I saw one person use the example of Coke, of Coca-Cola. They said, you know, what if? What if in the next few years Coca-Cola dissolved? You know, they had to sell all their assets. They went bankrupt, maybe. People stopped drinking it, and, and all was lost, so to speak, including that very famous recipe to how to make coca-cola but a hundred years from now or decades from now someone going through a thrift store or a yard sale finds the documents right the original documents the original recipe and that person says you know what i'm gonna start making coca-cola by the original pattern they start making it again they start having it they start showing people letting people taste it and people say boy that tastes just like coca-cola but what if that person who found that and began trying to practice and follow that same pattern, they had a friend who was a diabetic. And that person said, you know, I'm a diabetic. Could you cut back on the sugar? Maybe just a little bit. Said, okay, we'll cut back on the sugar. What if they had another friend who said, you know, the carbonation just kind of gives me a little bit of gas. And I don't like the carbonation. Could you cut back on the carbonation? Well, yeah, I can do that as well. Next thing you know, it's a similar product, but it's not the original product anymore. It might have been changed just a little bit. It might have been tweaked just a little bit, but it is no longer the original. This morning, should we be reforming or restoring? 
Well, we're thankful for the example that Martin Luther set in his courage to speak up when something is wrong. But may we strive to return to the simple, pure church that we read about on the pages of the New Testament. May we strive to be that and practice that in our lives. And as we conclude this lesson this morning, we would recognize that that begins with people becoming Christians. Not Paulites, not followers of Joel, not any man, but Christians. This morning you have an opportunity to do that. If you are here and you're not a child of God, you've never been obedient to God's simple plan of salvation, we will be singing a song of encouragement to ask you to do just that. To be willing to repent of your sins, confess Jesus as Lord, not confess Saudi, not confess Joel, confess Jesus as Lord. And then you're ready to be baptized for the remission of your sins so that the Lord can add you to his church and you can begin to live faithfully. If you're here this morning and you have questions about this plan of salvation, we would love to study with you as soon as possible because it is, without a doubt, 100% the greatest decision that you can make here upon this earth in this life. Maybe you're here and you've done that, but you've struggled to remain faithful. Maybe you have sin in your life, even as a Christian, because Christians can certainly turn their back on God. They can, as Peter would give the example, return as pigs to the mud and the mire. Maybe you're here this morning and you've done that. You've allowed sin to enter your life. You've separated yourself from God. We're thankful for the examples that we read about in the New Testament. You can confess your sins, as John talks about in 1 John 1.9. You can follow the example that we read about Simon in Acts chapter 8. Repent of that sin and pray for forgiveness And thanks be to God, we serve a God in heaven who is willing to forgive us. We are thankful for this opportunity that presents itself this morning. That whether you need to become a Christian or come back to him, we'll be singing to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.